I encourage you to bring a Bible to church anytime the church doors swing open, whether it be a Lord's Day or on Wednesday night. The Bible is our word from God, and so trust you'll bring a Bible with you. If you'd like to use the Bible that's provided there, the church Bible, you're going to find today's text for our study on page 1214, page 1214 of the church Bible, or in your own Bible at 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. This will be the second Lord's Day in a row that I have read the same verses. Last Lord's Day, we had something of a, an overview of what we would be considering in more detail, and that time has come today. But it would be good for us to read the text all the way through again. And so look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, where the Apostle Peter makes this astounding announcement, not just for the first century, but somehow even more so at this midpoint, this 21st century of time. The end of all things is near, he says in verse 7. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Peter, we know, has written this spirit-directed, spirit-inspired epistle in a day when it was a very dangerous thing to be a Christian. You remember from the very first words of the letter that it's addressed to those believers scattered throughout the then known world that he referred to as strangers. Uh, they were scattered because they were being persecuted because of their identity with Christ. Coming to faith in Christ, especially so in the first century, made one automatically an alien, an unwelcome stranger to the world. These redeemed are a people that God has actually called out of that old kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They will live radically different lives. Our first century brothers and sisters knew quite literally what it meant to say, this world is not my home. I'm 
just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And I just can't feel at home in this world anymore. I want to say that in the course of now 2,000 years of church history observed, it is a fact that the saints who suffer the most in the course of that church history, those were the generations that made for a more godly church. And they were a more consistent people whose hopes were anchored in the eternity to come. They collectively would at times say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And they didn't even mean by this time next week. God's people, you see, whenever they are squeezed, there's a sense in which we could say they are pressed upward. It's a hard thing, but spiritually speaking, it's not a bad thing. In fact, I need to say, I think, in our day, our Christianity suffers from the fact that it costs us very little to name the name of Christ. Too many of us saints, especially here in these United States of America, seems like we have nothing to complain about, mostly except the weather, our bank accounts, and a few of the aches and pains of life. One need not wonder why we yearn simply, and our prayers betray us, for more comfort here rather than the glories of eternity where Christ has already said he's preparing a place for us. Last Lord's Day, we heard Peter exclaim, and now I have read it again at verse 7 of chapter 4, that the end of all things is near. But I think sometimes we are like those ten virgins in a wedding party. Do you remember the story that Jesus told. Remember how half of them, five of them, failed to make adequate preparation for the bridegroom's arrival? Jesus tells us they all grew drowsy waiting when suddenly the bridegroom did appear and half of them were off desperately trying to buy oil for their lamps. It is not a happy ending. And I'll just give you a couple of the verses without us turning to the text in Matthew 25. While they were going away to make the purchase, give me oil in my lamp, Lord, give me oil, right? The bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. You can almost hear it latching, even Slamming shut. And then we read later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered through the closed door, apparently. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus gives the application to that interesting story. Be on the alert then, 
For you do not know the day nor the hour. But this we do know if we will believe that Peter's words are indeed God-given. The end of all things is near. Peter applies that same principle as Jesus' parable. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Watch and pray. We looked at this last Lord's Day, but let me just say, if ever we collectively as a people in this century of Christianity need to be awakened out of our world-induced drowsiness, it is in this time of relative ease. We need not suffer overt persecution if only we would believe and obey the Scriptures more. And if we did, what God has to say about the end of all things being at hand would surely produce more of a prayer life than we presently seem to enjoy. The Scriptures well studied will make our judgments more sound and certainly grant to us enough sobriety to have our lanterns trimmed and burning bright, keeping us watching even while in communion with the resurrected Lord, the bridegroom of the church of Jesus Christ. And so I say again, and two Lord's days in a row, if I might, Jesus is coming again. And that's not just a happy thought at the end of our agendas. That is a message that is meant to dramatically impact our lives today. And it'll show up in the things that we value, in the choices we make, and how we pursue the kingdom of light. We do not know the day nor the hour, but in the meantime, Peter would say, he does in this text in particular, we need each other. We need the church of the living God to function each one like individual members of the body doing their part. We need each other, if for no other reason. And sometimes just to keep one another awake to the realities of our eternal destiny. Because God has so designed the church as a people through whom he will mediate his sustaining grace for last day living, we had better make it a priority, Peter says, right there in verse 8, to love one another. You know by now, I guess, that I think I may have even mentioned this last Lord's Way, that Martin Luther, the great Reformation, is one of my all-time heroes of the faith. Did you know that Lutherans, through decades of time now, have employed the symbol of a boat? I have seen Lutheran churches designed to look like a boat, in fact. It is their denomination's logo. The idea communicated is that the church here in this world has no final resting place on earth. 
as though we were all in one big lifeboat, sailing life's tempestuous seas until we reach safely heaven's shore. Now, just ask Noah, if you're going to spend this much time on a boat, you had better learn to love your in-laws. And here in Peter's text, This first of all statement, this priority statement, that getting along with one another in life's tight places will require the spirit-born fruit of love. Because, well, the only people on this boat are very imperfect people, imperfected people. We are all unfinished We are still unglorified saints. In other words, we are all sinners. And so he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. It was Luther, again, who famously reminded his beleaguered congregation that they must leave the sanctuary and during the week, quote, be Christ to their neighbors. What he meant was you are a witness to your unsaved neighbors. You represent Christ to them. But I was thinking this week how the same can be said within the fellowship of the church. We are to be Christ as well to our brothers and sisters. Like Christ in the sense, for example, that by His great love, what does He do? He forgives yours and my many trespasses so you and I can forgive those who trespass against us. Love like this covers a multitude of sins. I know how bad I feel. I really do feel bad when I offend a brother or sister in Christ. And that's only those that I know about. The Bible tells us that we do all, in fact, offend in many ways at many times. And so, nothing short of a fervent love, ready to forgive, covering the sin of others with Christ-like grace, only that, if you will, keeping that picture of the boat, keep us row, row, rowing our boat, while not throwing someone overboard once in a while. Someone said a cute thing. Sometimes cute things even express good truth. They define the word fellowship this way. It's fellows in a ship all desperately rowing together against the tide of this world toward home. Not a bad picture. We really do need one another. All hands on deck. Well, rowing our boat together, but putting anchor down, if you will, for a few moments now at verse 9. I want you to look with me at a less mentioned but very important 
means of grace God gives to us in this meantime of our existence, if you will, between Christ's resurrection or your own salvation and his second coming. This wonderful means of grace called, look there at verse 9, hospitality. Hospitality. Now, I have to say, first of all, this is not so much about the rules of etiquette. Emily Post or Martha Stewart, I would say, while there is some aesthetic pleasure derived from putting the knife and the fork on the correct side of the plate and all of that, and I'm one to always get confused about which instrument to use first, but you see, biblical hospitality goes beyond tea and cookies or even a nice Sunday roast beef. These things, by the way, are highly recommended by your pastor. But it is a fact that such hospitable settings among Christians may indeed turn conversation toward the things of the Lord. And let me tell you, that's better than dessert. Although, I don't recommend leaving the dessert out. But the point I'm making is that hospitality, biblical hospitality, is so much more. Apparently, in the first century, it was a costly means of grace. How do I know that? Because the apostle not only commands this certain quality of hospitality, but what does he add? That it should be done, it should be accomplished, he says, without complaint or grumbling about it. Isn't it true that every means of grace or spiritual discipline does cost our flesh a bit of suffering and some self-denial? Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So, what is biblical hospitality? First, let me say that it is not as small a subject in the Bible as we might think. Not just Peter commanding it in this one small verse, but listen, Paul, on more than one occasion, John and the author of Hebrews, explicitly commanding the same virtue of hospitality for the church family. The uh, scholarly study of the ancient Greek, Roman, Jewish, and Christian culture, historian Gustav Stalin, makes this remarkable claim, and I quote him, one of the most prominent features in the picture of early Christianity, which was so rich in good works, is undoubtedly its hospitality. Apparently our first century brothers and sisters in the most difficult times of circumstance were given to this hospitality and apparently obeyed the commands of Scripture. Now, linguistically... We are helped by the use of the Greek word itself. This will help you, I think. We know that a hospital, same word, is a place set apart for the healing arts. We know that a hospice is a place particularly prepared to be a place of comfort to those on the very threshold of eternity. 
Biblical hospitality, rightly understood, is a place of healing, of refreshing, of finding new strength, and if needed, the encouragement to face even the valley of the shadow of death. Would you agree it's more than tea and cookies? Almost every reference to hospitality in the Bible is couched in family terms, by the way. A brother and sister in Christ. Hospitality, biblically, it is family. Caring for family. And in this case, it is the family of God. It provides the experience, I think, of a kind of home sweet home that we feel in the presence of other believers, even if one is far from their own house or traveling and far from your own local expression of the church. You know, I recall with such sweetness what it was to be in Romania some years ago, where I could not speak hardly a word of the language, But I well remember what it was to worship, even have the privilege to preach through an interpreter, in a very humble chapel out in the countryside among peasant farmers. And what it was after church to be embraced by the same people who insisted that we follow them down the dirt path to their humble home. There to be served fresh bread and goulash in their homes. They standing against the wall of the dining room, joyfully looking to see when our plates were empty so they could come again and fill them from the very little that they had. They gave us their best. I have to think that it was costly. And I want to tell you, it was not the words that were so foreign to us that mattered. It was the shared joy of Christ that made a place that otherwise would have been very strange to us feel on that Lord's Day there so far away, much like a home. Hospitality among believers, yes, perhaps around your own table, is a very tangible expression of the more general command which Peter's already given, and so does Christ, love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it is quite obvious that your pastor has been privileged to share many a wonderful meal with fellow believers. But I want to say this, even unbelievers can practice that kind of hospitality. But in those places where Christ is the unseen host. It is then I note that I go away with much more than a satisfied appetite. How much more a full heart because of the mutual love of Christ. That was our true feast. So often afterwards, of course, there are dishes to wash, a mess to be cleaned, and even a pantry to be restocked. But Peter says, do it. 
this sometimes costly and inconvenient thing called hospitality, Peter says, do it and do it without complaint. Because any time, in any way, we put ourselves out for a brother or sister, it honors Christ. The Jesus who, after all, puts on an apron, stoops to wash dirty feet, and then tells us to do the same for one another. He is the all-time host. He is the perfect example that a holy God of wrath through Him actually offers invitation and welcome to His table. Now, perhaps a good way to simply remember the meaning of biblical hospitality is to say that loving one another in the family of God is indeed a clear command, but the practice of hospitality is actually that love in action. Now, I want to say, too, there are degrees of hospitality. Its practical boundaries are very wide. Few examples that perhaps all of us can relate to. Serving as a greeter on Sunday mornings at Good Shepherd Church, where a smile and a handshake is biblical hospitality. Why? You see, it actually mirrors the welcome of Christ in the gospel. Yesterday afternoon, in a very Warm sanctuary with no air conditioning on. One of the dear sisters of our fellowship, as she has done so faithfully, anonymously, comes and puts the little cards in the pew pockets, straightens the hymnals, makes sure there's a pen for her brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day. It is a service which speaks of a hospitality it may be as simple as taking the time, a moment in the hallway of the church, to sincerely listen to the concern of someone's heart. And you say, what do you say? We all say, well, I will pray for you. And of course, the more important thing is that we actually do. And that that person knows that we have because you follow up. It is even small things like that. Sending a card or note of encouragement. I say these are the things that can make even a church building a home, sweet home, for our hearts as the family of God. Now, out of this broad definition of hospitality in verse 9, I want you to see that Peter extends our individual ministries like hospitality, in fact, he would say this is part of hospitality, with the admonition he gives us to use very individual and specific kinds of gifts. Gifts that have come to us by God himself. Look with me at verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, a Spirit-wrought gift, we are to employ it in what? It says, serving one another as good stewards 
of the manifold grace of God. What a phrase is that? The manifold grace of God. The many variegated, the many different shades of color to which this glorious grace of God comes to us. And here Peter is saying the grace of God, which is many varied, it is as varied as there are individuals in the body of Christ who have a gift for which they must serve and be accounted as stewards. Very few, if any of you, would question our need for an abundance of the grace of God in our lives. Have you prayed, oh Lord, give me more grace? But Peter reminds us that the many varied forms of needed grace come to us in the person sitting on either side of us in the pew. And I say again, remember the requirement of a steward having received these gifts is to be found faithful. The Bible teaches that every member of the body of Christ, every true believer, everyone who is part of the Good Shepherd Church, local expression of the church, everyone has a ministry. Basically, it is a matter of becoming <coughs> who you are meant to be in Christ yourself as you grow in grace and then to be to that person in a committed relationship to one another, a dispenser of grace to them. Now, this uh, doctrine of spiritual gifts and personal ministry is a fairly large one in the scriptures, and we will have opportunity to look at that in the course of our life together at Good Shepherd Church. But uh, this Peter text is not the primary text, but it is an important one when it comes to spiritual gifts. So without trying to teach a whole seminar on the doctrine of spiritual gifts, let's at least see what Peter has to say about these things. Peter's qualifying use of the spiritual gifts we're going to see delineated here in verse 11. And as I draw your attention to that, as I read the text for us, I want you to note that when it comes to the broad range of spiritual gifts, they tend to fall into one of two categories. Those gifts that Peter would say are related to speech. And then those gifts that we might call more hands-on. And some believers have both, but Peter's apostolic guidelines are these. Let's look at it. Those who do have speaking gifts. He says quite clearly, those who have the gift of a glib tongue, those who are articulate people, those who can put words together, if it's going to operate as a spiritual gift in the context of the church of the living God, there is a qualification. He says they are to speak only those things rooted and grounded, I like the King James, in the oracles of God, which is the word of God. A gifted tongue. Employed in the ministry of the word. Therefore, mere human reasoning, fancied impressions we get, 
human intuition or mystical excitements of the mind all fall short of this qualification. Read it carefully. Let him or her, whoever speaks, speak the utterances of God, that is, the wisdom of God's Word. I think a way of further understanding this is to say that if God has given you a loosened tongue to employ, be first a student of God's Word. Be Bible-saturated so that when you speak, you are speaking the oracles of God, the truth of God. is recorded, if you will, solo scriptura in the Scriptures alone. In fact, I would say the most precise use of this gift is the ability someone has to quote Scripture. Or a little less precise, but an important aspect of the gift is the ability to explain that scripture and apply it to the specific need of the hearer. And I'll open this can of worms probably in passing to say this is why we are not too enamored with secular psychologies, but wholeheartedly recommend biblical counseling. Now, those who are such a blessing is to have the second category, service gifts. Those are those hands-on kinds of things. Note that their gift also is to be governed by the Scriptures. The text says, whoever serves is to do so by the strength which God supplies. <coughs> Excuse me, the frog is thirsty. There, maybe he'll leave us alone now. Those who have hands-on practical kinds of gifts are to do so by the strength which God supplies. You know, you do not have to be a born-again Christian to get a good feeling doing good things for others. Isn't that true? I mean, don't you know people that really have no genuine relationship to the Lord, but they're, they're kind and generous and good people. And you know what? They get a good feeling. They would tell you that. I do what I do because it makes me feel good to help others. How wonderful is that? Oh, that we would have more of it in our culture. But listen to me carefully. If you have a God-given gift of ministering in tangible, helpful, material, or physical ways... Peter says those gifts are to be motivated and empowered, in fact, by God himself. So I would draw a quick conclusion about spiritual gifts in general here. All spiritual gifts must flow out of one's union and fellowship with Christ. Why? So that God receives... Are you ready? The thank you and the applause. That is, if there be any thank you and applause. Or let me say, one of the tests of a true spiritual gift in action 
is that the believer exercising their gift doesn't get bent all out of shape when others don't give them praise. If anything, they are grieved when exercising their gift if God alone is not praised. So that in all things, Peter writes in this context, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Once in a great while, someone will say to me, Boy, that was, that was a really good sermon, Pastor. That, that spoke to my heart today. That really blessed me. Now, I challenge you, and I'm not boasting here, for surely, as I do, I'll fail in this. If you could remember what my response is, or if you could overhear it, in case you've never said that was a good sermon to me, I always, under the discipline of grace, have learned to say, well, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. That's his word to God. In other words, be the glory, Peter says. All that are relating to one another would be more and more governed by this truth in the life of the church family. You know, we can begin to learn to say such things as this. When a brother or sister faithfully uses their gifts for our benefit in terms of how we respond we can say things like, I thank God for you. And I do thank God for many, many of you who exercise your abilities, your gifts for his glory. This blesses both the gift and the giver while humbly acknowledging the only source of any good thing in us is from him. Amen. Well, over all these verses, Peter is telling us what we should already have learned by now. If you and I are serious about following Christ and pursuing authentic godliness of life, this world is a hard and dangerous place. Much we need the tender care of our shepherd. Even to pray, Peter says, as we ought, with sound judgment and sober mind. We need his tender care to keep our love hot on the front burner of our priorities as the church of Jesus Christ. We need this to show hospitality in all of its forms and to dispense the grace of God to one another in the faithful stewardship of our spiritual giftedness and all for God's glory. This is to be our life in the meantime between the resurrection, your salvation, and the second coming of Christ. Now, if you take your hymnal now, I want you to see this. Open to hymn number 373. Hymn number 373. You'll note that this hymn addresses our Lord this way, even in the title. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Do you agree with that? Would you say amen to that? And if you ask in what large part 
this great and good shepherd cares for his own sheep, what he does is give us and trust us to one another. That his manifold grace can freely flow and be exchanged between us. You cannot say, I want more of the grace of God, but somehow I don't need the church very much. It's where the grace of God flows between the members so blessed. The Bible teaches that we need Jesus so desperately that we can do nothing without Him. But it also teaches that we receive what we need from Him through the hands and the hearts of others. We'll always be quick to agree. We need Him. And He says, yes, and you also need one another. One of the responses that I would pray would come to your heart, even at this time as you leave this place, is to say, thank God I have a church. A church made up of people whose names I know, even some of them whose homes I have been in, who have been in my home. I know a people there who God blesses me through because He has given them what I need. And I, too, Lord, want to be found faithful to give what they need in return. The beautiful bride of Christ being perfected and made ready for the groom. Oh, indeed, this way may the Savior, like a shepherd, lead us.